0: Disrupting Japan, Episode 71. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. You know, more than anything else, Disrupting Japan is about introducing you to the people who are changing business in Japan. I mean, really introducing you to them. Not the banal book tour interviews you hear everywhere else, but to let you get to know the real people starting things up in Japan. People who you would love to sit down and have a beer with, and with whom I'm lucky enough to do just that. It's letting you know the people behind the startups. And although Disrupting Japan is a business podcast, business is personal. Hiding behind every great startup with impressive numbers, There's an interesting story about how it got started, and hiding behind that interesting story is the story of what really happened, and the real goals, and the real successes, and real disappointments. And what I love about podcasting is that it makes it so easy for you to hear when someone is telling a PR-approved origin story, and when someone is really speaking from the heart, when they are telling you about something that really matters to them. Well, I've got a great story for you today, and listeners have commented that I've been a bit tech-heavy recently, so today we're going to meet someone who is decidedly low-tech, as in sledgehammers and paintbrushes low-tech. Keigo Fukagaki has started his own hotel brand, Bed & Art, in which he tries to merge travel with supporting the local artistic community. It's an ambitious project, to be sure. And as the interview progressed, I went from thinking, this won't work, to, nah, this is way too much of a long shot to really work, to, you know, this is just crazy and quirky enough that it just might work. In this age of SaaS, Airbnb, and middleware, sometimes it's refreshing to find a startup that deals in concrete. But, you know, Kaggle tells that story much better than I can. So let's hear from our sponsors and get right to the interview. I want to tell you about Justa. Now, I've known these guys for years, and I've been recommending them long before they became a sponsor. Justa is really the only recruiting site that gets bilingual startups. Whether you're looking for American engineers or Japanese sales staff or the other way around, Justa can help you out. Unlike recruiting companies, they're priced to be very startup-friendly, and unlike job boards, they're an active part of the startup community here, and they're trusted by some of the best talent Japan has to offer. So drop by Justa.io and see what they're about. Startups are the lifeblood of an economy, and there are few who understand it better than Deloitte Tomatsu Venture Support. Deloitte TVS is the number one startup supporter in Japan. And they spur innovation here by connecting startups with larger companies and government entities. They work free of charge with these startups to help them with acceleration, PR, fundraising, and also finding the right corporate partners here. So far, Deloitte TVS has supported more than 3,000 startups in Japan. And now they have a global open innovation platform connecting startups and enterprises worldwide it's a great way to connect with some of Japan's biggest players. So be sure to check out what Deloitte TVS has to offer. So cheers. Cheers. So we're sitting here with Keiko Fukagaki of Bed & Art, which is sort of a distributed hotel art space, but
1: you're going to be able to explain it much better than me. So what is Bed & Art? Basically, we're a hotel startup, and we're trying to find... A new way to start a hotel brand, not you know, a real estate mogul. Uh, right. We're just four guys uh, with a little bit of cash. We also work with a lot of artists, and we're mixing the hotel business with art to create a new kind of travel experience. Okay. Concretely, what are you doing? We're creating so- one-of-a-kind rooms with artists and every time someone stays in those rooms part of the revenue goes back to the artists it's bringing together a lot of unique travelers and the local artists together
0: are these apartments that you own or are they apartments that
1: other people are letting you renovate how, how does it work we're actually a hotel uh, we're registered as a hotel so we're taking over old buildings and we're renovating those Creating a lobby, bar, hotel rooms. Yeah, in Tokyo, there's a lot of these office buildings that were able to convert into a hotel, and I think that's new. Usually, when you think of a hotel, it's a lot about where it is and how beautiful the exterior is. Sure,
0: the hotel, the hotel industry has really become standardized. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's good and bad. You know what to expect, but. You guys have come up, like every room is completely different and some of them are really crazy. We'll put links to to them on the site so everyone can see it. Always hard to describe art in an audio podcast. <laughs> You've got a couple of hotels now, right? Mm-hmm. One in Koenji, one in
1: Kyoto. Kyoto. And then we have a pilot room that started off as an Airbnb room in Ikebukuro. So how many rooms are in each of these hotels? Very small. Uh, the one in Koenji has two rooms. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And Ikebukuro has one room. And Kyoto has three rooms. All right.
0: is your marketing primarily via Airbnb or do you use Expedia
1: or or word of mouth? How do you get your bookings? So most of our bookings come through Expedia and Booking.com. Really? Yeah. I would have figured it would have been Airbnb. No, we're actually at a separate price range than what an Airbnb customer might be looking for. Oh, okay. So we're priced at the same level as a hotel. So you're looking at 160 to 200 something dollars per night. Usually in Tokyo, at least, Airbnb costs are much lower than that. So right. even though we have some of our rooms listed on Airbnb, most of our customers don't come through there. Our target market is actually slightly separate from an Airbnb uh, customer base. We believe we're targeted towards young professionals who are looking for great service, but also a unique experience as well. Well, Interesting. I guess in some ways you're you're kind of the anti-Airbnb, because
0: when you rent an Airbnb... Pretty much anywhere in the world these days you're going to go into the same type of room with the same Ikea furniture Mm -hmm. and that's all fine but
1: it's getting actually sort of standardized like the hotel experience. Exactly it's interesting that you say this because this is exactly why we started BNA and I I mentioned that we started the Ikebukuro project as a pilot because two of our partners or co-founders Uh, They used to run a lot of Airbnbs in Tokyo. They were actually Airbnb moguls. And they had something like, you know, 40 Airbnbs in Tokyo. And they were one of the first ones to start kind of really making that into a pseudo business. And they were killing it. But uh, I came in and I actually made fun of them. Said, hey, you guys are basically creating this cookie cutter room with IKEA furniture. And all you're doing is making money. Well, there's nothing wrong with that there's definitely nothing wrong with that but these guys are you know at the time they were like 27 brilliant guys and that's why i'm working with them but i realized at 27 i think if you have a higher goal you can achieve much much more interesting things and that's where i came in and kind of poked around and they agreed they they wanted to do something more interesting now Airbnb rates in the last year or so have really been coming
0: down in Japan. Mm-hmm. Are they still in that Airbnb business, or do they sort of pare that
1: back? Or they're in it, but they've definitely pulled back. They realize the competition is really high in terms of how many listings there are. Yeah. So even if you are doing a great job, the price will come down. It's it's kind of a race to the bottom now. Exactly. Now that everyone expects the IKEA furniture and exactly. All right.
0: Okay, so um, tell me about your customers. Who stays here
1: and who goes to the bar? And We call them like-minded people. Okay. Um, to us, our focus is really to try and find who would be our best friends in the rest of the world. And these people are young, hip. They know what they want when they travel. They're well-traveled, so they, they expect a certain amount of an unknown And they they feel that they can handle certain amounts of, um, I guess, differences. Are are your guests mostly foreign or Japanese? They're mostly foreign, and they're actually all from Europe or in the U.S. or Australia. So Western countries are our main customer base. Are they people from, let's call it an artist community that are usually using it, or is it more of just regular travelers looking for something a little different? Uh, they're definitely um, the creative types. They're TV producers, they might be writers, they might be musicians, web designers. So they tend to be more in that creative field. But they're all young professionals. They make a certain amount of income that they can actually stay in a hotel and kind of you know, have a decent amount of spending when they come. I'm not saying they're luxurious in any way but they're, they've done the Airbnb and yeah. they're over it because they know that they can afford a little bit more service, but that middle ground is missing right now. That middle ground between the standardized Airbnb
0: experience and the standardized hotel experience. Mm-hmm. But from a business point of view, if you're operating a property that only has two rooms, that's gotta be hard to, to turn a profit. Do you have other sources of income here?
1: Our hotel has a bar on the first floor, and an art gallery on the basement. And we also have a community space on the rooftop. We generate some uh, income through those, through events and art gallery showings. Okay. But definitely we're looking to um, scale. And that's one of our biggest uh, hurdles right now. I think we've built everything so far as a pilot. Really try to test out this concept and how much market there is for this. Well, I've got to say, you've chosen to combine two very difficult
0: businesses. The hospitality business and the art gallery business are both extremely hard to make money in. So more power to you on that. But when you were talking about renovating these old buildings, so your background is in architecture, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. And and you and your partners got in there yourselves, and you were
1: tearing out walls and and renovating the buildings and such, right? Yeah, and we called on our friends. We had some pizzas and beer, and asked our friends to come over and paint the walls with us. Of course, under you know some supervision, but you know it was a great great time, and we built a community out of that. You know, everyone had a little part in it, and mm. uh, they brought their friends, and now they're all supporters of the brand, and I think it was was a great way to start something where we had not just a handful of people talking about us, but a great deal of people helping and talking about us. So did you buy the buildings? Are you renting? We're renting, and I think that's how we're going to keep expanding. Right, right. It sounds like you guys are sort of midway between being a community and being a business. Mm -hmm.
0: Maybe even like right now is a, a time of transition. I'm not sure. Actually, wait Come to think of it, you ran a a crowdfunding campaign at one point. Mm
1: -hmm. Tell me about that. What was the goal and how did it go? So we ran a crowdfunding campaign right before we launched our hotel in Koenji. We raised $20,000. So it's not a big campaign, but we raised money to create a community space on the rooftop. The reason why we did that is because... um, We're trying to keep our hotel as little as possible to do with outside money so that the artists have the freedom separated from any kind of attachment to outside influence.
0: Okay, so the crowdfunding was in the local community or? Yeah.
1: Yeah, our target was the local community and our Koenji project is truly about the community and we chose Koenji, which is kind of outside of the main yeah, it's central side of I Tokyo. I wouldn't call it the suburbs, but it, it's outside the main loop for mm-hmm. sure. And we chose that location because it's where a lot of artists live. Yeah, And there's a deep culture of just uh, alternative lifestyle and alternative music, that kind of stuff. So, What well, sounds like the, the crowdfunding... More than raising the money was about building that community, kind Mm -hmm. of bootstrapping up that community around you. And we believe our community is actually one of the biggest draws for our guests when they arrive. Right. Uh, As soon as they arrive at our hotel, you come into our bar where a lot of artists and the locals hang out. And that was our goal. Um, We wanted to create that experience. And that's something no... I, I truly believe other hotels won't be able to replicate. It's a very unique experience.
0: Now, Bed & Art is a really different kind of company than is usually on Disrupting Japan. And that's, that's great. I want to expose people to more of the interesting, quirky startups that are going on in Japan as well. But it also makes me really want to ask about your future growth plans. Bed & Art is it's the kind of company that, that VCs hate. If you know what I mean, it's, uh, you're holding a lot of inventory. You've got long-term leases, kind of the quirky, unique style is something that's difficult to replicate in, in other markets. It's kind of, yeah, like high fixed costs. So, so far you've been bootstrapping.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Are you planning to continue to bootstrap? Are you looking towards raising VC money? What's your, what's the future of growth for Bed &
1: Uh, We're definitely um, looking to expand and raise money, but we haven't considered going to um, VCs at this point. Um, We're looking at someone closer to an angel. And for our real estate, we already have a real estate scheme that works where it's not actually attached to our company. The real estate itself will be managed through another investment scheme. So it's kind of a standalone and it's separate from what, what you would consider our asset. So we're, we'd be renting from a separate entity. So are you profitable now? Or at least, as they say, ramen profitable? Yeah, we're just about even right now okay, with the great. super minimal amount of uh, rooms that we operate. From here up, I think scale will bring that number up. The overhead costs will come down as we create more rooms.
0: Rather than talking about like uh, short-term VC and fundraising, let me ask you: What's what's your long-term objective for Bed and Art? In ten or fifteen years, do you see this growing and IPOing it? Do you see selling this to a large hotel chain? Do you see this as just a great company you want to, you and your team want to run on your own forever? What's going to happen?
1: This this is probably not something most of our list, the listeners on this uh, show, would want to hear, but. Right now, we're really interested in running it for a long time and uh, creating a great network through it. We want to expand internationally, and 10 years' time, we imagine a and a brand uh, hotel in several other cities around the world. From our discussions before,
0: I know you're in talks with several entities overseas about expansion, and I don't, I don't want to ask you to give away any names at this stage, but... Tell me, how do you think that would work? Because what you've got so far, it's so tied to the, the current community, uh, from the crowdfunding to your friends who got together and helped you to build it. How do you replicate that
1: overseas? Our CoNG project is actually a prototype of that. And we were testing out how do you actually create a community around the hotel? None of our teammates are actually from that area, but uh, we found a main person that was a central figure in the community, and we brought him into the team. And he was the one who uh, was able to get everyone involved and create that community. And just in, you know, six months of us being there, I think this model is replicable in other communities, uh, creative communities around the world. The reason why we're focused on a creative community is because there's there's a certain need that each one has. Mm. And I think a hotel is actually a very unique but viable way to create a sustainable e- economic community that a lot of these creative communities desperately need. I've got to say, from the traveler's
0: point of view, it's a really unique experience. It's to stay in a place where you will automatically kind of be plugged into the local art community is pretty attractive in and of itself. The only question is again scalability. So if you have two rooms with two guests that are mingling with a community of artists, that's a wonderful experience. The community will kind of absorb them. Mm -hmm. But if you have a hotel with 120 rooms the art community will be diluted and and will sort of disappear into that. So obviously you want to run some with more than 2 rooms, but what what do you think the balance is for something like this?
1: I think uh the balance would would really be somewhere between 40 to maximum 100 rooms uh per location. I think that's the scale that we'll probably be opening our future locations.
0: Okay. With a correspondingly bigger gallery space and event space.
1: Correct. Excellent.
0: Let's talk about you for a bit. So you grew up in San Francisco? In Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Okay. I thought you lived in San... Did you live in San Francisco for a while? I did. Okay. I thought that was just in the back of my head. So why leave San Francisco to come to Japan to start
1: a startup? It was definitely a personal reason. I met my wife. In a bar in San Francisco. She ah. just so happened to live in Tokyo and I decided to move over here. Okay. But um, I was just a normal architect designer. I had nothing to do with the startup world. But as soon as I got here, you know, being someone who speaks Japanese and understands the culture fully, but comes from a different background, I saw a lot of room for change. I think there's a lot of room for innovation. And after two years of being here, I really felt this urge, this, you know, calling to do something new and bring change. That's really interesting. So
0: the the urge to start a company, the startup bug kind of bit you in Tokyo rather than San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, it, it makes sense. In some ways, There, I think there is more opportunity in Tokyo because there are fewer startups. Mm-hmm. Whereas in San Francisco, it's... So competitive, you've got 10 companies in any micro niche, and any micro niche you can look at. But actually, your first company, or one of your first companies you started, was an online wedding
1: planning Mm -hmm. type company, yeah. And we're still running it. I've been featured in a couple podcasts here and there, but um, yeah, I initially started a wedding planning app, yeah, it's still running. We have a, a solid customer base and in that case you just were not happy with the arrangements for your own marriage and you mm-hmm. thought you could do it better or right. what's the uh, what's the story there you know being here i attended a couple weddings here and noticed this gigantic cultural difference the difference in how weddings are run it's very traditional here uh very inefficient and no fun for any of the guests that are attending so I saw that as an opportunity to make a change. That's classic startups problem
0: solving. You're Mm -hmm. solving the problems that are right in front of you, Mm -hmm. whether it was the the wedding or the problems with the Airbnb experience here. Do you feel kind of stretched thin? I mean, everyone talks about being a serial
1: entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. but you're kind of being a parallel entrepreneur. Right. I haven't even started talking about some of the other projects that I'm involved in but uh, I think they have a central theme in that I'm trying to create services that really allow people to create a lifestyle where they really are inspired and enjoy themselves. Does it make you feel sort of stretched too thin sometimes? I mean if, if bed and art
0: really takes off will you end up selling off your other businesses or spinning them down or are you going to try to juggle all of them moving forward? What's the plan?
1: The plan is uh, hand them over and leave that to someone else. You, you're right. At some point, some of these projects do start growing at the same time and you start getting stretched in, which is where I stand right now. Is it? Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, running one startup is like having two full-time jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, though, uh, b were a team of three co-founders and a fourth team member who is just as involved. And uh, we are able to really have a great working uh, relationship where things are moving fast and working well. Excellent. A couple of years back, you sponsored a
0: Tokyo-San Francisco hackathon where you brought a a handful of San Francisco engineers to Tokyo. And and how did that work out? Those programs are
1: always so interesting. That too was totally like a self-sponsored, self-advertised, self-marketed you know, hackathon conference that we organized. And we had about 12 entrepreneurs from San Francisco come over to Tokyo and spend the whole week with a set of another 12 uh, entrepreneurs in Tokyo. It was more like a cultural exchange. And what we were trying to achieve there was to really create a culture based on friendship and trust rather than on business, I still believe that working with friends is the best way to work. Oh, absolutely. Were they working together as a hackathon on a single project? Were they working on multiple projects together? What was the structure? So they were given an assignment to go research and come up with an idea and hack something together in that week. But also, mingled within that was an art program, a music program, where they... All got to enjoy what Tokyo was about, Mm -hmm. and we curated that. We tried to create a conference based on inspiration through human interaction and through the city. You know, I think that was different from any other conference that is being held in. I think so. I mean, it sounds a lot more hands on, a lot
0: more interaction. And well, let me ask you this because you obviously. We're working closely with both the Japanese engineers and the San Francisco engineers. So what did the Japanese engineers think was most different about the engineers from San Francisco? And what did the teams from San Francisco think was most different about the Japanese teams?
1: So the Japanese team really found the way the American team took in inspiration and immediately turned it into something that was tangible, and they were able to move from that inspiration to object very quickly. Uh-huh. I think that was an eye opener to the Japanese side, and for the American side, it was definitely about how much uh, quality was baseline for almost anything that was created in Tokyo. That is kind of two sides
0: of the same coin, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The the team, a team that is willing to throw something together and put together a prototype over a weekend is not going to be too concerned about the quality of that prototype, but those that really want to get the highest level of customer experience, it they won't be able to put together something on a weekend. Right. Interesting.
1: They were so different, but the, the way they thought about experience, there was something that they all took home. Actually, what's interesting is um, our secondary goal was that some of these members would fall in love with the way the other side works, and they would actually make a career move. So far, there's been two uh, members
0: that actually... Which
1: direction? uh, From the U.S. side. To Japan. To Japan. Interesting. We're supporting them right now through a program that we've set up kind of separate from the conference, but with the same goal. All right.
0: Let me ask you So many conferences and panel discussions I'm on and the the, the media in Japan often focuses on the problems with the Japanese startup ecosystem and what's missing about the ecosystem. But it sounds like both from your experience personally of diving into startups here and this sort of uh, hacker exchange program has found a lot that's attractive in the startup ecosystem. So let me ask you, what what do you find attractive about the Japanese startup ecosystem? What's going right here?
1: I won't be able to directly answer that question, but I believe the reason why I think Japan is a great place is because the country itself living here is a fantastic place. I think it really is kind of a future model of what a lifestyle means and what it means to kind of live in a safe environment a place where, if you have the the courage, you can make innovation happen. All the basic needs are here. It just hasn't started yet.
0: I agree with you on that. Both in the sense of Japan being a very comfortable place to live. You know, after the first year or so, and you kind of get over the the strangeness of everything, mm-hmm. it's a very comfortable place to live. And I'm optimistic about the innovation we're starting to see happen here. Okay, well, listen, before we wrap up, let me ask you what I, I call my magic wand question. That is, if I if I gave you a magic wand and I said you could change one thing about Japan, the educational system, attitude towards risk, anything at all, to make it better for startups and startup founders, what would you change?
1: I would change the way funding happens in Maybe not how it happens, but who is involved. So how would you change it? I would ask a lot more people to be angels. I think Japan has a, a very big number of wealthy individuals. But, you know, they were never startup founders themselves. Or if they were, it's very common to hold on to whatever you got.
0: I think that's true. Right now, most Japanese angels, there are a lot of doctors and lawyers and finance guys and relatively few successful entrepreneurs doing the angel thing.
1: I think there's there's still a lot of focus that needs to be made on reinvestment and giving back to the community. So do you think the the value of that is
0: increasing the amount of funding available as angel investment or do you think the value of that is having the expertise people who know
1: what it's like to run businesses i think the latter giving back to the community in terms of their expertise and the trust that they can provide for the young entrepreneurs i think the biggest problem right now for startups here is that you know they don't have trust so they won't be able to get their foot in the door. A lot of things in Japan is based on trust or how, you know.
0: So get their foot in the door in terms of making their first sales or raising
1: additional funding or in what respect? Both of those and having the ability to talk to other medium-sized companies. You know, I'm not talking about giant conglomerates, you know, those you you just need to have the right connections anyways. But medium-sized businesses, it's not about who you know. It, it, it really is about just how much trust you have under your belt. A lot of these companies who are trying to do B2B businesses, they just can't even get their foot in the door. And I think that's something maybe big companies can provide, but I think having certain expertise on their side... That's a good
0: well. point. It is some, there are very few angels playing that role in Japan now. But I think uh, the future looks good in that regard. So when you look at San Francisco, for example... There are seven or eight generations of successful entrepreneurs who became angel investors or became venture capitalists and taught the next generation. Mm-hmm. So, at least seven or eight, going back to the early 70s, late 60s. I think Japan, we're only seeing the first generation right now mm-hmm. that, that are doing this. So, there's not that many of them. And I think they're all trying to figure out how to do
1: it as well. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the trends are all in the right direction. We're, we're also starting to see, you wouldn't have called them entrepreneurs because they were just businessmen from a couple years back. But uh, uh, those people are starting to look at investing into startups uh, in Japan. And I think that's a really interesting change that's happening in the last year, I think. Uh, even for A, people who aren't really involved in that kind of startup world is interested in us. Because we deal with, I guess, real estate, which is a little bit different from... Oh, right. A so you'll attract a, a different type of investor. That makes
0: sense. Well, excellent. Well, listen, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you. Some of Japan's largest companies are starting open innovation programs and actively reaching out to global startups. They're new at this. And that's where Crew, with two W's, comes in. Crew runs corporate startup accelerators for companies like Toyota and Panasonic and dozens more. And these programs are one of the best ways to jumpstart your business in Japan. Many are open to global startups, and they're completely free. Now, I've known and worked with the Crew team, and they're probably doing more than anyone to bridge the gap between corporate Japan and global startups. So drop by crew, with two W's, dot M-E slash four hyphen startups and get started. And we're back. Bed and Art is doing something, or at least has the potential to do something, very special. I think the real core of the business model wasn't really explained as clearly as it could have been during the interview. As so often happens, a lot of the great insights came out after I'd put away all the microphones and... As Kago and I were walking back to the station talking about our lives and our past companies and what we were trying to achieve, we stumbled across what is really unique here and what is the heart of their business model and why Kago might actually be able to scale Betten Art globally. Oh, and the following phrasing and explanation is my own. Kago wants nothing more than to help out artists and to support artistic communities That's really where his heart is, and that's wonderful. But put through the filter of the more cynical and perhaps more pragmatic mind of Tim Romero, well, here's how I see the opportunity. On the demand side, it's a cliche that people don't want to travel. They want experiences. Marketers have convinced millennials that this is a new thing that only applies to them, but we Gen Xers and older... Know that the appeal is much broader than that. Now, renting out out of the way rooms with funky designs, sure, there's some small novelty value in that. But being able to travel and to actually be plugged into a local artistic community, to meet real people with real stories, ah, now this, this has real value. As long as it's honest and authentic, it's priceless. So how do you get an artistic community to allow this to happen? By bringing them into the fold. By putting in the effort that gives the community event space, exhibit space, to ensure that the guests are exposed to the output of the local artists, and people do buy art and go to galleries when they travel. And by sharing a fair amount of the profits with them. If they do it right, Art might just be able to remain at the core of a large artistic community— one big enough to absorb 40 to 100 rooms full of travelers. Now, any smart MBA will point out that you could squeeze the artistic community to almost nothing. After all, the movie, music, and anime industries have shown that there's a lot of profit to be made by having struggling artists work for nothing. But of course, that would destroy the community and the long-term value, the authenticity of the experience. No, no. A startup like Bread and Art can only scale or even survive with people like Keigo at the helm. People who are willing to give up a lot of the profit and who genuinely want to help the artistic community. So what do you think of Bread and Art? Keigo and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com show071 and let's talk about it. When you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Keigo and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And you know, I'd like to say a quick word about, not from, but about our sponsors. These are all great firms that support both the show and the startup community in Japan. Please do check them out and let them know that you heard about them on Disrupting Japan. It really helps me keep the show going. And most of all, Thanks for listening, and thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.